You're listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. Statistics. 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 Hi, folks, and welcome to the show. This is Richard Zink, and you are listening to the podcast of the biopharmaceutical section of the American Statistical Association. I hope everyone's safe and healthy. This is episode 79, and it features a conversation with Nusrat Rabi. We discuss biomarkers throughout clinical development in her recent book, Biomarker Analysis and Clinical Trials with R. Hope you enjoy the conversation. The 2020 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop takes place virtually September 22nd through the 25th. Registration is now open, and registering gives you free access to one online short course. Be sure to register early. As a reminder for these discussions, please note people are sharing their personal opinions, so please don't overinterpret their comments as representing the groups or organizations with which they participate. Now let's start the show. Well, hi, folks. Today I am talking with Nusrat Rabi, Senior Director of the Neurology Business Group, uh, Head of Statistical Methodology at AZI. She is author of the recently published Biomarker Analysis in Clinical Trials with R. Good afternoon, Nasrat. Thanks so much for being here. Good afternoon, Richard. It's great to be here. Well, we always like to start off and try to understand uh, where people came from and uh, how they got started on this journey of statistics. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. My journey began actually in um, in college. I uh, real at that time, um, uh, I, computer science was a division of mathematics when I was in college, and I got very interested in computer science and algorithms. And so my beginning was not statistics; it was computer science. And um, I also liked. Uh, economics, mostly econometrics, so I double majored in computer science and economics, uh, not knowing where my, that I would head into statistics later in life. After working in software engineering, I became uh, interested in statistics. I pursued a master's degree in statistics at Berkeley and uh, worked in consulting and realized that uh, I have a passion for medical science. Both of my physicians, both of my parents were physicians. And I came upon this field of biostatistics, which combines the application of statistics into uh, medical uh, life sciences and and medicine creation and whatnot. So, after working a few years after my master's, I decided to pursue biostatistics, and I um, got my PhD in biostatistics from the School of Public Health at Harvard. And um, one thing led to another. I became interested in, in genomics and ended up doing a postdoc at UC Berkeley again in the statistics department where I uh, was 
you know, had the opportunity to work on big data, genomics. Big At that time, we didn't call it big data, it was genomics. And I developed an algorithm to call SNP genotypes accurately on asymmetric SNP arrays. And the rest is history. It's become the field has changed and I have changed. And I think right now what I do is in the intersection of statistics and computer science in clinical trials. No, that's very interesting, and, and thanks for the summary. I, um, yeah, I've always had a passion myself for the, sort of the programmatic and aspects of being a statistician myself um, on simulations and things, and it's always interesting to hear other people talk about uh, how important those aspects are to, to being a statistician, uh, particularly uh, these days. And you're currently head of statistical methodology uh, in neurology at AZI. Can you give us a brief overview of your role and, and, and what you do there? Uh, yes, uh, Richard, the, the role, it was a, a new creation. As you know, a lot of uh, companies are inundated with data. And in, I'm in neurology, so let's pick a disease. One of the diseases I work on quite a lot is the Alzheimer's disease. And previously, there was a lot of, you know, data collected, uh, uh, it, the data in unstructured data, such as MRI scans and PET images and even tau images, uh, lots and lots of questionnaires with many subdomains of cognitive assessments. And yet... The clinical trial, the approval of the drug, is based on very precise measurements of one or more of the to total cognitive scale uh, measures. Um, and a lot of the data remains um, not really used. So the company had a vision to start a group that um, does look into that data. So it's that methodology and data science to be exact. And so what I do, and I've created this team now where we look at structured and unstructured data, which includes images. Um, we build predictive models. We even look at real-world data. The um, Alzheimer's disease space has a rich registry of uh, observational cohorts of people with Alzheimer's disease, both in the U.S., Australia, Japan. So the predictive modeling uh, is augmented by adding data sets that are well curated, publicly available. So my group now, um, what we are chartered with are building causal and predictive tools of uh, patient outcome, patient prog disease progression, uh, their status, the staging of the disease. So basically looking at many of these structured and unstructured data that were not looked at previously, um, as well as giving uh, methodological direction that involves simulation or some of the newer technologies that are coming um, in clinical trial, like digital twins, for example, um, 
guidance on those methodolo methodological aspects of clinical trial. That's what this my function is all about. That sounds very interesting, and, and certainly the opportunities to, to, to leverage all of this additional types of data through images and, and unstructured data has certainly become very important in, in recent years and trying to get more quantitative assessments of, of disease. And mm -hmm. so you recently published a book uh, entitled Biomarker Analysis and Clinical Trials with R. And I guess the first question um, may seem a bit obvious, but what, what compelled you to write this book? Uh, you know, um, that's a great question. Um, what caused me to write this book is, um, I think the I was thinking about this. Why did I write this book? And um, much of my career has been spent um, in clinical trials, in biomarker evaluation. And so I wanted to lay down a lot of what I have learned, especially from an applied computational statistical programmatic point of view that serves as a practical guide um, to biomarker statisticians or analysts out there. Um, there's a lot written on clinical trial statistics, how to design a trial, um, survival models, uh, mixed effects, repeated measures models, and so on. But the biomarker uh, literature um, I have I've gotten a lot of help actually from many many papers in writing this book and in my career. But when it came to a textbook, I didn't find any that filled that niche, and I decided to do that. I felt that I was called to do it because I have dedicated all my career to biomarker, one way or another. Recently, a colleague of mine said that she wanted to work on clinical biostatistics because she had a weakness. <laughs> her, her background had a weakness that she didn't have that experience. And I told her, no, that's not a weakness, actually. What people don't realize that biostatisticians serve in many aspects of drug development. Uh, some do, yes, work on uh, reg you know, regulatory submissions, and that work is very complex. But there's plenty of others who have made uh, their whole career on, for example, non-clinical statistics within pharma. So they work in CMC, in manufacturing, and imaging. And um, I personally have worked in biomarker phase one, two, three, four. And so you can have a a very robust career within drug development, uh, working on the so-called non-regulatory submission biostats work. So this book was a summary of how biomarkers help in every stage of clinical trial, from preclinical all the way to phase three. And since I've worked in many of those aspects, I decided to write down a guide for um, a practical guide to in for industry statisticians for biomarker analyses. 
Thanks for that summary. And yeah, you raised a, a, a very good point in just how diverse, you know, a, a statistician's job can be. And I think probably a lot of people who think about statisticians, they probably just think, you know, there's a core set of tools that statisticians know. And, but mm -hmm. generally, you know, a statistician is a statistician not really realizing all the different ways in which you could specialize um, in a type of methodology um, or a particular disease area. Um, mm -hmm. Exactly. It's, yeah, it's a really great comment. And uh, you mentioned a, a textbook, so, and I think if I recall, you do some teaching. Um, do you use or do you hope to use this book in, in some of your teaching? You know, the this is a great question. I have been thinking about making a course out of it, and uh, at some point I'll be talking to you and others in the ASA uh, about making a course, and I hope to use it in in future teaching. Um, again, in university te teaching, we we tend to um, go for the the books that cover some of the theory. Uh, but there are applied courses coming up based out on, of demand on clinical trials, uh, biomarker analyses, and um, I think this would, if if I were to make a course on that, I, this is the book I would choose to analyze data sets, publicly available data sets using R and C, and to show how statistics is used at every phase of drug development in analyzing a diverse set of data that we call biomarkers. Good, and we've, we've used the term biomarkers quite a bit, and I, I think many people probably instinctively think of biomarkers as being some sort of uh, genetic information, um, but how would you more broadly define the term biomarker? That's a great question. Um, you know, I see that biomarker, and again, that definition is is rapidly changing, right? And when you say genetic biomarker, that's it, 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 when you said people think about genetic biomarkers. Those are the ones that we know a lot about, and there's a lot of papers on that. Um, I think I briefly mentioned that was the beginning of me looking at biomarkers was the HapMap SNP genotyping data um, back in my postdoc days. And a whole cadre of statisticians who are now known as bioinformaticians, um, you know, focused their whole career on genetic uh, biomarkers. But biomarkers have been around before, uh, you know, genetic uh, advances, as well as uh, now into more other technologies. So I consider biomarker anything that can be measured, honestly, anything at this point. It's a, you know, it's defined in so many ways depending on what uh, source you look at. It's any indicator of a normal biological process or if it's a, a pathogenesis or it's a response to an exposure. So, for example, um, 
we can have, you know, the molecular genetic biomarkers, which is very, very common in oncology. But then you also have, within the molecular biomarkers, you have tissue biomarkers, histologic. You have uh, um, you have blood-based biomarkers. You have other fluid biomarkers from saliva, urine. You have cerebrospinal fluid biomarkers. You also have non-molecular biomarkers now, which are the radiographic, I call those biomarkers, which include CT scan and MRI scans, PET scans, ultrasounds. Um, you have, you know, start, so starting from the simplest biomarkers like lipids and cholesterol, which are biomarkers, can be measured biomarkers for heart disease, all the way to the genetic molecular then to radiographic, and now we're coming to an era where the big data has pushed us to, um, you know, I have uh, some chapters on the combination of biomarkers, so there's many, many biomarkers, and together they can be combined in a function uh, to what I call a composite biomarker. Um, then uh, of late we have seen literature and research and tools to, uh, to a, a new kind of biomarker that has been called digital biomarkers. So the digital biomarkers are where electronic medical records can now pretty much tell uh, how or whether and how the patient will progress, in t say, in oncology or in neurology. So now we're in the area of digital biomarkers where it could be electronic medical records, it could be your Fitbit, it could be any device you're wearing that uh, generate a lot of data over time, and th those are also considered biomarkers. Thanks for that summary. and. One of the things I found interesting about your book is that you have a, a section dedicated to biomarker statistical analysis plans. And I wanted to ask why you had this emphasis on plans and are there areas of biomarker SAPs that are new or have greater detail than non-biomarker SAPs? Oh, that's a great question. You've really um, picked up on one of the unique um, sections that I added to to the uh, book. Uh, again, I wanted the book to be very uh, useful for the industry statistician, and I believe that we have a, a we, there are a lot of things that are borrowed from the clinical statistician. One of which is this uh, statistical analysis plan, and um, so. Sometimes people think when you are doing biomarker analysis, you are in the domain of quote-unquote exploratory analysis. And um, um, I don't buy that completely because, again, uh, it depends on what phase of drug development you're in. Some biomarkers are also are known already from literature, from other companies, from the disease research. So this idea of exploration 
is, is problematic in my opinion because while we want to explore for sure, but when it is measured in clinical trials, there should be a clear rationale for measuring one or a set of biomarkers and that means there should be a plan. Some of it, uh, some of the rationale is already understood. It should need to be, needs to be recorded and a plan uh, has, what it does is avoid the pitfalls of endless analyses trying to, when, so that's what I call an exploratory, when there's endless analyses, um, which is subject to human bias and um, has a real, chance of not getting to any real conclusion. So the analysis plan, the biomarker analysis plan, is a tool to de define in general what you're going to do with this rich body of data. And the study uh, uh, analysis plan is not the right place to um, incorporate all those details. In, this, in, the, in the main SAP, um, ordinarily we include um, the hypothesis testing for the regulatory submission, and there's uh, a clear bolus of analyses that is either genomic or um, other markers of inflammation, other mar um, other um, other reasons why certain analytes were measured, and they need to be clearly uh, defined in an analysis plan, and starting with objectives and questions, and then breaking it out into the types of biomarkers that are being measured. And in asking those questions and in answering that, answering the questions in conjunction with the translational and clinical scientist, I think the biomarker statistician gets clear on what the questions are so that the analysis is precise and addresses those questions that were of interest in the beginning of the study. Great, and uh, I'm, I'm glad you included this emphasis on the, the analysis plans. I, I think it is important to, to document what ultimately what we want to be doing um, right. in our work. And, right. and you talked about sort of this journey of biomarkers from early phase clinical development through phase three. Um, can you give us some examples of how biomarkers are used in early phase studies? Uh, yes, actually, the in my book I start out with um, start out with um, actually even uh, with toxicology and animal studies. You know, as I, we were saying earlier, um, the statistician in the non-clinical group is uh, asked to do many things, which include uh, the the generation of uh, study randomization kits. Um, and uh, sometimes uh, we're also asked to do, um, you know, sample size calculations for toxicology studies, um, which, which are animal studies. We're looking at a dose response, and the animals uh, are come in. Those studies are sometimes have um, serial sacrifice and parallel sacrifice. So 
the AUC dairy under the curve for measuring the the PK exposure needs a special uh, uh, methods, a partial AUC method, which is very very statistical concept. So both the sample size calculations in those designs and the AUC calculation uh, do need to, these calculations need to be worked out by statisticians. So I start out with toxicology studies, giving a, a flavor to the reader of um, how early uh, the the sort of non-clinical or biomarker statistician can get involved. I go into an R package called PK, uh, which I find is very, very robust and has a um, design of uh, many different types of equivalence designs. Uh, their bioequivalence is often a, a, um, a, um, a prerequisite, the kind of studies that are done uh, in, um, for, to establish uh, bioequivalence between two pharmaceutical products. And so what comes up are crossover equivalence designs and composite hypotheses, crossover designs. There's our package BE, bioequivalence for that. Um, and so these types of studies are early on in clinical trial. And I believe that the wonderful world of R, um, which is heavily, you know, used in my book and by most of uh, biomarker biostatisticians, have very robust um, packages that have these special types of designs and analyses. And um, and 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 you know, obviously, it is an open source software, so some of this is available in SAS. Some of it is available in PASS, uh, which is a, the, both of these are, um, you, you buy, you have to buy, buy this software, commercial validated software, uh, but R also has equivalent versions and sometimes even with better graphics that provide uh, same results for these early, for, for these early studies. Um, so, um, and then the, in the sec in the early section of the biomarkers, um, in the early part of clinical trial design, we are often concerned with pharmacodynamic biomarkers, PD biomarkers, which are the you need an assay that's available uh, for the PD biomarker or biomarkers. Usually, one could be multiple, but this is an analyte that actually increases proportionally to the dose. So um, it's, it's used, measured, and used and analyzed to make a dosing decision. So chapters uh, four and five, um, I introduce the visualization um, and analyses of PD biomarkers. And I introduced some of the newer plots, for example, uh, violin plots. Um, obviously, the marker is oftentimes looked at over time, so the use of mixed effects repeated measures model, the visualization uh, of that through the package GG plot has wonderful graphics. 
And I know for now, uh, in my group, we're trying to use this package quite a lot for visualize, visualizing um, linear mixed effects, repeated measures models. And to end that section of early clinical trial, I introduce a introduce interesting type of biomarker, which is um, time-varying biomarkers. So biomarkers, uh, the, the PD biomarker, of course, varies with time, but there are other biomarkers that you just take one measurement, and that's okay. In When you have PD, pharmacodynamic biomarkers that are varying over time, of course, you could do mixed effect repeated measures model. But the question always comes up, do they or does it correlate with clinical efficacy? So um, I do dive right into looking at clinical endpoint and the time-varying biomarker right in the first uh, part of the book. So, of course, we could do mixed effect repeated measures model, but I also uh, do introduce the idea of, for example, time uh, time-dependent covariate in survival analyses, and then also bring up a uh, the idea of modeling the biomarker and the clinical endpoint, both of which are varying over time in uh, in a joint model. And I believe uh, let me stop here and ask if you um, had any other questions because I was uh, talking mostly about the section one, which were, which is concentrating on the phar pharmacodynamic biomarkers. Is that the part we're talking about, Richard? Yeah, that's correct. And that was a, a very good overview um, in talking about uh, the early phases and particularly how you're trying to tie the that PD data to sort of what happens, um, the clinical efficacy. Uh, yeah, that's certainly uh, exactly. the important uh, step from uh, sort of that early phase into uh, the clinic. So, no, it was a very good mm -hmm. overview of those topics. And Great. So the, I think a, the bulk of your book focuses on predictive biomarkers, and I'm wondering if you could tell us how, how you would define predictive biomarkers and then how you would establish whether or not a, a biomarker is, in fact, predictive. Right. So this is such a great question. And I think, as you know, a few years ago, I would have given you a precise definition. A predictive biomarker is such that it, it you know, it it predicts the, the treatment outcome, the clinical outcome. Um, but now, um, you know, we have to become more fine-tuned in, in answering that. So in in the book itself, um, I keep the predictive biomarker pretty focused. Um, predictive of treatment outcome, essentially. Um, if so, as you know, the the biomarkers can be, you know, broke. I've already talked about the the pharmacodynamic type of biomarker where we're looking at dose. Uh, are we in the right dose range? How is how is it increasing with dose? Um, we can also look at safety biomarkers, 
which can look at clearance of the drug, the um, and uh, there is also disease monitoring biomarkers. Um, there are biomarkers that are monitoring whether the disease is getting uh, worse or uh, better, and um, also. Um, similarly, there are prognostic biomarkers, which are similar, but we tend to think about prognostic biomarkers in categories, for example, low, medium, high. Um, or prog prognostic biomarkers could be a molecular subtype, uh, let's say, um, you know, if, yes, it's a certain uh, a genotype might have a um, worse disease outcome. Uh, than another. Predictive biomarkers is often of great interest, right, to drug development companies because here's a biomarker that is actually be able to tell you who is going to respond to the drug and who won't, especially if it's a, a binary uh, biomarker, which it often is, or it could be in, in, in three groups. Now, when I mention pharmacodynamic and prognostic and monitoring and predictive, um, they're not mutually exclusive necessarily. So a marker can be both prognostic and predictive depending on what the what mechanism of the drug is engaged uh, in the in the human body. So a uh, majority of my book is about prediction of treatment outcome. Uh, that seems to be of uh, great interest uh, to the drug development, the, to the business of drug development. So, um, should I take you? Should I give you an overview of the section two, which is uh, predictive biomarkers in the book? Sure. So the sec the predictive. I, I have uh, def defined it is a let's to to make matters simple we can say that there is a group that's going to respond uh, and there, there's a group that's not going to respond it's not known and when it's not known where the cutoff point is for example in a continuous biomarker where we cut and we say okay you're going to be marker positive marker negative that right there gives rise to um, a lot of um, statistics, in very interesting, I should say, statistical issues. So the predictive biomarker is also, if you're going to have a predictive biomarker, that means you need to measure it, which means you need to have a companion diagnostic test in conjunction with your drug being developed. You need a biomarker that reliably measures that analyte in the patient body. So um, often there is a parallel track of approval. If, you, if there isn't a diagnostic test that's approved already, then the statistician gets involved in working not just with the drug development um, time horizon or pipeline, but also needs to be very closely aligned with the diagnostic test development for, for the predictive biomarker, uh, which also is regulated by FDA CDRH. So 
the first is one of the first issues I talk about is clinical endpoint. If it's a continuous endpoint, then we have to learn how to cut it, where to cut it, and do that in a statistically sound way. Um, if you already know the biomarker, biomarker positive and negative subgroup, which sometimes is very easy because it's it's a for example it's a mutation, it's it's either present or absent. Even when you know that. You have to have a right design so you can rule out that there is no drug effect in the negative subgroup, uh, or there may even be a deleterious effect of the drug in this negative subgroup. Um, if you have a very good knowledge that it only works in the biomarker positive subgroup, then that evidence, that statistical evidence and clinical evidence has to be present from either other clinical trials of that same drug or earlier clinical trials. So I go about some, I describe some of these uh, different designs like uh, biomarker identified, biomarker stratified, and also biomarker um, adaptive, which is that you start out not knowing, and in that same uh, seamless clinical trial, you you interrogate the biomarker, you study the efficacy, and later on, you um, through a bias coin, you only go, uh, either you randomize more and more subjects to the, let's say, to the positive subgroup, or at a, at a point, you start a phase three seamlessly on the group that has proven to be effective. So the chapter goes on how to um, design such trials, look at operational characteristics of some of these designs I mentioned in the biomarker positive and negative subgroup, um, doing it all in R. And, um, and you know, there are several good commercial software available for that. But I, again, I kept the book um, on, on the open source software platform. I, did, I have uh, covered generating power curves for marker subgroup subjects, positive, how many subjects do you need, and how many subjects do you need in the overall population. In the confirmatory trials, um, I've talked about, uh, which is something the biomarker statistician works very closely with the clinical statistician, is to have a testing procedure. So, for example, you may want to test the overall population, and if it passes, then go to the biomarker positive. Or you may want to test the biomarker positive and the overall population as co-primary. And in that case, what are the, um, how do you set the alpha? What is the testing sequence? Uh, what is the gatekeeping procedure? So those power uh, calculations are given in the book. And again, by no means have I uh, made a claim that these are all the exhaustive designs. There are many, many designs with the biomarker subgrouping um, coming up, and this is just to orient the user, introduce the reader to uh, some of the most common designs and how to implement them, them in R. One of the uh, chapters that I'm really proud of 
is really the cut-off determination. There's a lot written and covered in the last 10 years about design and analyses of trials with biomarker positive and biomarker negative subgroup. But I have also um, concentrated uh, a, a lot of energy into the idea when you don't really know, but you have to make that cut off from a continuous uh, biomarker. So that means you're looking at biomarker treatment interaction, right? And 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 identifying the optimal split. And so there's several uh, methods and corresponding. Um, frequentist and Bayesian methods of looking at where that optimal split should be made. Um, it's an interaction, obviously. Um, and in Chapter 11, I introduced a very, very cool methodology that was introduced by Eric Holmgren, an old colleague of mine from my days at Genentech, um, where you can actually use group, you can repurpose group sequential technology, which was used uh, for looking at um, um, different stopping points, right? Taking a look at inter um, intermediate uh, interim analyses, point one, interim analyses, point two, and then doing a final analysis and how he has actually refashioned that technology to look at different quartiles and 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 the benefit of this is that we can use the same um p value correction of group sequential methodology to come out of the trial and uh say something about in which quartile of the biomarker would be the uh, the appropriate split and I also cover adaptive threshold design, adaptive seamless design. There are packages to implement uh, the adaptive seamless design, um, and that has been actually used in the industry, this design to get an approval for a drug. Uh, and it, again, it's, it's, um, it's, it's kind of a modification of a seamless phase two, phase three study that has been applied to biomarker positive and overall population. So, uh, so predictive biomarkers takes up, you're right, a big chunk of the book, and it is the section two, uh, which is of um, a lot of interest to the drug development paradigm and it, where a biomarker biostatistician may find himself or herself working a lot on. Well, thanks for that summary, uh, particularly, uh, uh, you know, summaring, summarizing uh, what you do when you're faced with a continuous biomarker and trying to get to these uh, sort of dichotomies where, you know, we sort of, uh, so we can simplify problems to positive and negative, um, which are often, you know, how clinicians like to think about things in, in terms of um, endpoints. And I think earlier you mentioned uh, the possibility of being faced with multiple biomarkers. And can you talk about some of the approaches used for combining them uh, together and and, and and using these uh, biomarkers jointly to, to determine whether or not a patient has progressed or has severe disease? Or... 
absolutely. And <clears throat> I want to that is such a timely topic. In fact, nowadays, <laughs> where I am in neurology, um, that's all I'm doing is combining multiple biomarkers. Um, I, and before that, I uh, just want to touch on the part four of the book, which is surrogacy. Uh, is that okay? Do we have time to cover that a little bit? Sure, sure. Okay. The, the, the surrogacy, and I don't want to, um, you know, ignore that, is that such an important topic? And um, I have covered it um, in a very introductory manner in my book. But uh, uh, a surrogate biomarker is also a very interesting one, uh, as, as you know, and there's been a lot of research on that. So surrogacy essentially is leaning towards uh, um, causality. So if if treatment is modulating the surrogate, uh, then um, the treatment is modulating in the the actual end clinical endpoint, and the the percentage of modulation should be also very very closely tied. Um, so it could be that the variability, that if the treatment is affecting the clinical endpoint, 80 or 90% of that uh, causation can be explained with the relationship between the treatment and the surrogate endpoint. So that is a really high bar. And as you know, it takes many clinical trials um, and many much time to establish a biomarker as a surrogate endpoint. But a surrogate endpoint is also, it starts as a biomarker. At one point, progression-free survival was a biomarker. That's all it was. And now it is an accepted endpoint. And similarly, you know, CD4 count in, in the, in the uh, AIDS era, uh, AIDS, AIDS um, disease area is also an established, has also been established as a surrogate endpoint. Now with the COVID-19 and a lot, as well as a lot of push on the FDA to look at biomarkers, there are always opportunities to push a biomarker forward if it shows to be in the causal pathway between the treatment and the clinical outcome. And uh, there are a couple of uh, recent approvals. Um, I think we're seeing more and more of them in, in the field of immuno-oncology that is based strictly on previously unestablished um, surrogate endpoints, which are biomarkers. In, 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 especially in areas, uh, let's say in oncology or areas where there, there is no treatment and um, it is a relatively um, um, rare disease, uh, I think the, the hurdle for establishing surrogacy um, is, is lower, as it, I feel it should be, uh, but the statistical rigor for establishing a mar mar biomarker as a surrogate endpoint is high. And that part of my book lays out a um, study level and then meta-analysis level um, 
aspect of establishing a biomarker as a surrogate endpoint. So that's that. I think that was uh, an interesting part in the book. And then when we come to your question about combining different biomarkers, this is where I think there is explosive growth right now. Um, in my, my current um, uh, function role at ASA, I can tell you right now, I have multimodal biomarkers. And that includes imaging, clinical uh, variables, uh, demographic variables, uh, you know, pros, patient-reported outcomes, and so on. And so, um, so we're no longer just looking at one or two. We want to combine them and have something to say about um, what it means for for that drug, uh, for that population, whether it's a disease, whether it's a statement we want to make about disease severity or disease progression or treatment outcome. So combining biomarkers, for example, this is where the statistical analysis plan comes in because you might want to include all your inflammation biomarkers in a set together. So you take the functional uh, the functional approach. So you group the biomarkers in different functions. Could be oxidative oxidative oxid, oxidative stress as as one function, or it could be apoptosis, or it could be inflammation, as in um, autoimmune diseases. And you want to study these biomarkers together. And this is where uh, I think R again is so beautiful because. It can do very, very powerful visualizations like heat maps, like trees, um, that bring out the story of what's happening either with, between treatment or placebo or between slow-progressing disease, high or fast progressors. Um, as far as modeling, I, I discuss several approaches. I, I talk about the random forests and the tree-based methods. Of course, um, uh, uh, gradient boosting methods, um, simple cart trees, they have to be pruned, uh, but random forests when you have many, many, many uh, variables uh, uh, are particularly useful. Random forest, I think, shows repeated um, good results in, in biomedical data. So um, we do need these multivariate type of approaches to combine bio, multiple biomarkers, and because the univariate of one at a time uh, doesn't uh, work in this setting, so in in this part of combining, uh, in the part in my current book about um, um, combining multiple biomarkers, I talk about five main methods. Of combining, one is the regression-based methods, right? So you can do uh, L1 or L2 uh, regularized regression, um, elastic net, and so on. So you penalize for adding um, a new variable, and it gives you a stable, uh, a stable model. Um, I. Uh, and again, we have to think that, in, again, in, in drug development, 
it be, it's a little bit more complicated because we're not just looking at fast versus slow disease. Uh, we're not just looking at um, a, a tumor responder or not. We, we are often looking at the interaction of treatment and these biomarkers, so we have to keep that in mind. The second set of methods I talk about, as I mentioned, is the tree-based methods, which include the CART uh, classification regression trees, uh, but uh, better than that are sometimes the random forest, which takes many, many trees and, and takes a vote. Um, survival trees are now available for survival uh, endpoints. Um, I talk about the the third uh, method, uh, class of methods to talk about is clustering. So when you don't know how to, you are, when you don't know or you don't want to label your um, classes, you can certainly do a cluster analysis and you should see nice functional um, functional grouping of your biomarkers. I talk about the you know the, the hierarchical class clustering and K means PAM, etc. The last section of in that uh, uh, the last group of methods I talk about in that method, I think is becoming increasingly more more useful, and that is the method of systems. That that is a method method of graphical models, and that model type of model uh, has been used in systems biology by bioinformaticians, which is trying to understand gene gene interactions. That is so readily applicable to the vast amounts of biomarkers and endpoints coming down from clinical trial these days. So I think we can certainly take a page from, from, from the book of systems biology and use graphical models which builds penalized or regularized partial correlation networks that explain the interrelationship between these biomarkers. It's furthering the uh, goal of often the translational scientist loves this because he or she has an understanding about each of the biomarkers, maybe, some results from the uh, papers that are already established. But from the rich and nicely curated data sets of clinical trial, we can again lend evidence to the interrelationships of the of the biomarkers and the whole uh, explain the whole network of them. So those are some of the uh, methods that I have um, listed in my book with corresponding R code, and there there are many others. And I think that might be the, if I write another book, that might this might be the area I will uh, write more on because. Um, the, the data is exploding. Um, I think um, in the beginning, I don't know if I mentioned to you, now we have microbiome, we have phenome, we have genome, we have imaging data. So um, as this, you know, it's in clinical trial, we will be, before we used to write P greater, greater than N. <laughs> now we're in the era of P infinitely bigger than N. Um, 
So I think, you know, we have a lot of data coming in, big, big data coming in. How do we make sense of that data um, in, in really big data uh, would be the topic of another book. Um, this one is still in the um, realm. Uh, in my book, these chapters are still, it's multiple biomarkers, but it's still in the domain of a few biomarkers, like 100 or or. or uh, are, are, are below. No, thanks for that summary. Yeah, that trying to take a set of covariates and or biomarkers and you know apply a bunch of different modeling techniques to to see which ones will be most effective in trying to predict a particular outcome or or more effectively measure an interaction. Yeah, that's certainly a challenging process and. Uh, one of my old co-workers at SAS used to get involved with mm -hmm. a lot of these Kaggle competitions and trying to predict right. differing uh, endpoints and, you know, running tens of thousands and perhaps even hundreds of thousands of models to try to identify one from this space that you know, more effectively performs than, than others. Um, and exactly. We've talked about some of the uses of biomarkers. Are there are there places where biomarkers are, are abused in practice? Oh, that's a great question. I, I think yes, absolutely. I mean, um, the, yeah, we've talked about the use, and there are abuses, mistakes, maybe misuse. Um, I, I was thinking that I I believe. Even the the misuse or abuse can be categorized under different uh, types of mischaracterization. One, um, the the first thing that comes to my mind is an incompleteness. So there's an incompleteness feel to these types of misuse, which is the totality of the biomarker evidence is not often considered for various reasons. We are collecting this data and we're not using it. So that's what I would call an incomplete view. So um, often, you know, it's sitting with a CRO or it is sitting with an academic institution, but there's not someone looking at the totality of the evidence, either of the disease or about the drug uh, effect, the therapeutic effect. Um, there is no statistic biomarker analysis plan. Uh, there is not someone who's put everything together. So the evidence, I think, is very important. And also under incompleteness is, I think we've mentioned that before, you, we do need to have a systematic plan to explore biomarkers and lay out what objectives those biomarkers that were collected can be used for. Is it disease progression? Is it disease monitoring? Is it risk stratification? Is it prediction or causal analytics of clinical or therapeutic response? Whatever it is, make a plan and use the evidence to you answer the question. So otherwise, uh, the, the whole effort of collection of biomarkers um, would go incomplete or underutilized. Then another... Um, type that I see is a, a misuse is a biomarker of target engagement is sometimes um, 
seen as a proof that the treatment is working. Um, it isn't at all. It is what it is. If it's a PD biomarker, um, it's, it's usually measured to see, for example, making dose decision or sometimes biomarkers is measuring target engagement by the drug. It may or may not uh, translate into inefficacy in the clinic. So we have to guard against um, using uh, just one marker and for one objective and, and, and equating that to a phase three success in the clinical trial. Um, again, a biomarker becoming a surrogate is a big, uh, is a lengthy process that needs a lot of data and a lot of experiments for that. that so that's one misuse. The other you, misuse I see is um, some companies haven't actually paid enough attention to biomarkers. Again, it's under the don't ignore uh, misrepresentation. I think I mentioned that biomarker-based approvals are becoming common, and I can recall at least one in the last week. Uh, I think it was given to Mark. Um, so the immuno-oncology space is 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 really making very good use of biomarkers. Um, I, I believe it was a tumor burden. Uh, biomarker that was used to get approval for the drug in a very specialized setting. Um, then the other, again, it's not so much misuse, but lack of use is under that pay attention, don't ignore, is two more points. One is that there are um, evidence where a lot of people are, a lot of people or groups or institutions, companies may be afraid to see that the drug is working on a certain subgroup. If you ignore, speaking of predictive biomarkers, if you ignore that, then um, it could be that the, the, the bottom line would be that you may miss out on approval and your competitor may, who may have uh, paid attention to the predictive uh, biomarker or biomarker panel um, may have a very gang may have a drug that works gangbusters, you know, on that subgroup. And then the third in the pay attention piece is uh, there are actually now what's happening from what I can see that there's volumes of biomarker data in electronic medical records and also in the screening data set. Are we using that? Can we use that probably at the screening? Uh, says a lot about the patient already. So I think um, many companies are in the forefront of either looking at tools and algorithms, either homegrown like I'm doing with my group, and sometimes I also look at uh, companies that are specializing in algorithms to make use of the volumes of data that is becoming quite common and what, how can we utilize to those tools, not just the data, because the data itself, it's, it, you have to curate it, you have to wrangle it. Yes, that's a big job. But then you also need the practice of data science and statistics to glean insights from that data. And I think that the most innovative companies are doing that already. So those those are what came to my mind, Richard, about 
lack of use or abuse. Thanks for that summary. And we've arrived at the last question, and I wanted to get your feelings or thoughts on what changes we can expect uh, with biomarkers and their analyses in the in the near future. Um, I think I was alluding to that, Richard, in the last question I answered. I think that um, in the era, one of the buzzwords I haven't used in my talk or discussion today with you is the uh, the the two words uh, called uh, precision medicine, right? Um, precision medicine and even personalized medicine. Um, is here uh, to stay. And so we expect to see in the near future a lot of these biomarkers, including digital biomarkers, uh, lab biomarkers, uh, will be um, able to say a lot more about someone's health, uh, both at the physician's office, um, next, uh, in a disease context, uh, pairing the patient with the right drug, um, possibly even to a clinical trial if there is, the, uh, the, there is no approved drug. And in the drug development setting, um, I think those technologies will come right over and inform patient selection and um and also um you know choosing patient group again going back to so the I described personalized medicine but in precision medicine those tools will be brought in to to inform the drug developer on what subjects does this drug work the best of what do i need to measure to make that call on every patient so in the future, we will see more use of biomarkers. The definition of biomarker may be, you know, expanding. And the, the computational and the statistical knowledge and the computational skills of the statistician uh, will be greatly needed in the coming future um, for analyzing and making sense of this data. Well, that looks like a bright future. And uh, Nasrat, I want to thank you for talking me to, with me today. And I certainly learned a lot about uh, the biomarker topic and, uh, and about your book. And uh, I, I hope you have a lot of success with it. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you for the interview. Um, I loved uh, I love the podcasts you do, and it's been such a pleasure to be part of the podcast series. And there you have it, episode 79 on biomarker analysis with Nasrat Rabi. Do you have an idea for a podcast? Well, of course you do. Are you part of a scientific working group that wants to show off their research? Do you want to discuss a new book you have published? Do you have a session at the 2020 Regulatory Industry Statistics Workshop and think people may benefit from a primer on the topic? Or do you want to dig deeper into an important topic that may not get the appropriate bandwidth at conferences? Let's talk about it. Please get in touch with me at rzinc at targetpharmasolutions.com. That's R-Z-I-N-K at targetpharmasolutions.com.
In the meantime, practice social distancing, wear your mask, and keep you and your loved ones safe. Until next time.